0: Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or
1: more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian and Marcus, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals
0: to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin.
1: Welcome to Coffees.me podcast, Uh, we are back again, and uh, because we didn't get any questions from you, we promised you that we're going to torture you with some sensory issues. I hope you guys are excited today, we have also a guest, it's Eric Dench from Dench and Granger Selections. And of course with me today is also Marcus Young from Food Campus.
2: Hey, everybody. I'm excited to talk sensory and to have our special guest here for a a different look at this than maybe us coffee folks sometimes think about.
1: Yeah, because we didn't say that Eric actually does wine, right?
0: Yeah, we import wine from Central Europe, so Hungary, Slovakia, Serbia, a little bit of Austria, and a little bit of the Balkans, bosnia Croatia, Slovenia. I wonder
1: why I pick you for this podcast. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, we have actually wine from my hometown. It's so freaking special, guys! It's really special. I have goosebumps. Everybody, like, do I have goosebumps? <laughs> yes, it's real. Um, yeah. It's real, verified. So, and it's from a guy called Botfrijesh. It's a beautiful Hungarian name, but the land is actually in Slovakia. You know, my town half is in uh, Slovakia, half is in. Uh, Hungary, it's called Komarno, and this one is a variety, which is an old Hungarian variety called Kadarka, and you guys bring it here, right?
0: Yes, I have a bit of an unhealthy obsession with Kadarka. This is now, Mm -hmm. I think, our fifth or sixth different Kadarka that we now import, and I believe we're the only ones importing this grape, Mm -hmm. despite it being one of the most uh, planted grapes in Hungary pre -pre phylloxera and pre-Soviet times.
1: So why don't we grow it in california
0: ah, that's a great question or oh, it's a late ripening thin skin variety so who knows but i think it has a shot and i've tasted vines of uh, of kadarka planted in the sands in 1880 down in serbia so it has longevity it's got uh, i think a lot going for it but we'll see on the market what, what happens but i'd love for someone to get some some cuttings and plant it and see what happens did you ever
2: No, I'm so excited to have a totally new experience of wine here today.
0: All right, yeah. go for it. Yeah, let's pour it. And this is just a ah, Katarka. They come in many shapes and sizes. Some with petritis on all different soil types throughout Central Europe. It's called, you know, Gamza in the in the Slavic areas. Um, and like Bulgaria, yeah, okay. and also I think in uh, parts of. Uh, so yeah. I
2: just I just poured this wine and I just have to say as a few bubbles formed in the glass from the pour, the purple quality of of that um, head or whatever you want to call it is really <laughs> incredible. Now that it's settled in the glass, it's taken on more of a ruby color. But
0: yeah, to me what I think I love about it also this time of year is uh, you know, most light reds, they ripen at the beginning of the season, your Pinot Noirs, your Schiava, Lagrines, things like that, Gamay. These are ripening increasingly in, you know, August, September. These are sometimes coming in at the end of October and November. So it's like all the end of the season flavors, not the fresh beginning of the season flavors. And in many cases, it can contract botrytis.
1: This one does not have it, but um, the range of this grape is just phenomenal. Explain. Um, I smell a bit of a tiny bit of funk. What would that be? Well, one, these
0: guys are, uh, you know, kind of farming with a biodynamic angle. Um, it's unfined, unfiltered, just a little bit of sulfur bottling, but also they do what they call the hamburger method, which is kind of a, a, le- a way of layering, you know, foot stomped grapes with whole cluster and the So there's a little bit of that enzymatic, you know, fermentation happening in berry, but also the juice fermenting through. So there's not a lot of volatile acidity to this wine. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of, you know, other faults like Brett, but you do get some of this like really raw kind of, you know, fermented and very flavors. I love.
1: Yeah. I love it. I think it's beautiful. Um,
2: it's, yeah. My, yeah. my first impression on the nose, I mean, there was really, there was a lot of florality to it. It mm-hmm. was like hibiscus almost. Though. Yeah, was mm-hmm. like this kind of juicy, almost like sharp floral quality and, even something a little green, like a little, like, fresh cucumber or mm-hmm. something.
0: Yeah. And there's just an element of these wines being, even though they're harvested very late in the year, these wines are, you know, 11.5%, 12 12.5% 12 alcohol and dry. So they there's all this concentration, but there's a lot of, it's refreshing. And it's very rare when something is harvested this late is also refreshing. And these wines can handle a little bit of chill as well. Quite lovely.
2: That's...
0: And we're very common as the, uh, you know, the spritzers in Hungary. Historically, we take a fruch. Mm -hmm. It'd be this and some hard, sparkling mineral water. And that would kind of get you through a work day ad ad (laughs) (laughs) nauseum.
2: No, it's perfect. Like, as I'm tasting it, it's, like, juicy. It's, like, fresh cherries. And I can just imagine that opening it up with a little of a mineral water, it's incredible. But cheers, guys. Yeah, cheers.
1: Cheers. Thank you for coming. We just dug
2: right into it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for full disclosure, uh, Eric and his company are sponsoring our future podcast with some wine. So thank you guys. That's really yeah, f- thank nice you of so you. Much. No, my
0: pleasure. And it was fun to come in here and cup some coffee with you guys and get that whole part of the sensory
1: analysis of coffee, which I've never done before. So uh, speaking of sensory analysis, uh, that's our goal today is talking about you know, the comparison between the wine and a coffee world also about how objective tasting is and this is a kind of intro episode to something bigger we do later I uh, had to be the professional coffee tasting uh, but I think the objectivity is always a big question so I yeah, 100%, think 100%.
2: That... And, and before we jump into that I think it's you know we can we can out to the coffee industry a little bit to Eric and <laughs> I think every coffee 101 training every new barista that sat down with a manager or a trainer new roasters, the comparisons to wine just fly Mm -hmm. around. Right. Right. It's something that I think is more familiar maybe to a layman is something that you can kind of taste and have fun with and explore flavor with. Um, But I always wonder if those comparisons are accurate. Um, You know, there are similarities, right? We can talk about terroir in both of these. We can talk about the impact of process. We can talk about the impact of age and farming and everything, but at the end of the day, they are so different, and, and, and that's what we'll kind of dive into. And I don't
0: know place. a single winemaker who doesn't take coffee seriously. Oh, really? I, yeah, I think it's
1: almost considered a character flaw. Actually, that's great because I just, you know, I I have a hard time to exchange my coffee for wine in Sonoma. It always <laughs> makes me sad that they say, oh, we cannot drink coffee because it influences our taste. I mean, whenever I have a producer visiting here... The first order
0: business always makes me nervous is can I find them a good cup of coffee that they'll actually appreciate? Well, we got that.
2: Well, so. come them here. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> they can <they laughs> come yeah. here.
2: It's an open door. Anytime. That is, there's
0: definitely <laughs> a, uh, a link there for sure.
2: <laughs> yeah, so it's. Um, I think it's always interesting. We kind of have these casual links, and I'm excited to sit down and explore.
1: Yeah. So, Eric, tell us detail. how we should taste wine. What's the methodology, technique?
0: Good question. I,
1: you know, I have I I don't really
0: prescribe a way per se, even when I'm as a wine importer and distributor in terms of selling it. I mean, there's kind of the initial just, you know, joy factor. Like, you know, the ultimate question for me on most is like, do you want more or is it just an intellectual glass or is it, oh, that was interesting, but what else do you have? Like, do you pour the second glass? Can you envision Mm -hmm. finishing a bottle? Which I know seems like the most obvious question. Like, do you like to drink it? But you'd be surprised if people accepted a restaurant or get at a wine shop and just kind of power through because they bought it. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, also working with wines in this part of the world, um, they almost have to come with some element of storytelling and context. Hmm. You know, you're a bit of an exception. But if I said name, you know, a major Slovakian village or town apart from the capital or name a national dish or how do you say cheers most even well-traveled people would not know. And that, I would apply the same thing to Serbia, apply the same thing to Hungary. Hungary a much bigger country. Mm-hmm. But if I eliminated paprika, what's another national dish apart from goulash? Most people wouldn't know a thing. What's a city that's not Budapest? <laughs> the, I mean, that kind of Iron Curtain did have a profound effect on a lot of people. Our geography kind of stops in Italy, Austria and just kind of you know, fades. <laughs> And we don't have that immigrant population here the same way. We don't have a, you know, a little pest or, a little or you have
1: me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you're a small number, but you're a potent, you're a potent batch. But you know what I'm saying? Like we don't have, you know, what's your favorite Slovakian or Hungarian or Serbian restaurant? And I'll just give you the West Coast.
2: Right. Right.
0: Where for French or Italian, we know how to say or sante, or we know about cassoulet. We know about... You know a steak frit or we've had these dishes. We know some songs. We have some architecture. We have some things, and these wines just lack fundamental context, history. You know, even ask you about you know the empires and things like that over there. It's largely unknown. Language is largely unknown, and so I think when I taste wine, I really want to get a sense of how does it exist where it is. How is it consumed lo- locally? With what foods does it grow and go with? And how is it done? And then I think above and beyond that, um, I think what's increasingly important in the market is farming. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that we are on the seller on the high-tech and the low-tech side, but if the farming is not, you know, verging towards re- you know, regenerative agriculture or organic farming or those kinds of modalities, I feel like that's the market that I really want to focus on. And if the wine comes from a good place, I can handle more of the
1: modifications in the cellar, but not the reverse. So you experienced that coffee cupping with Marcus and me. Yeah. And you know, that's a very technical thing. As you could see that you didn't even know what kind of coffee you cupped. There was a code on it. Yeah, it, was a, it was a blind, a double blind. essentially. Double bl- yeah, exactly. So, uh, is that something you guys do in the wine industry? Yeah, to an extent, although. I, uh,
0: you know, I don't really engage in the kind of the parlor trick aspect of, you know, oh, I can smell this is a, you know, 72 LaTache from a, a difficult vintage, that kind of thing. Oh my
2: God, Eric, it's, you make me so happy right now. I describe <laughs> so much of that wine tasting, that sort of sommelier approach yeah, as, as a parlor trick and, all the time. And largely,
0: I think it is, which is impressive on its own right, but it's largely deductive logic. You can look at the color and the weight and the acid and the alcohol. And you can get a sense of, is it a cool or hot climate? Or, mm-hmm. you know, you can tell if a wine's unfiltered. You can tell there's certain aromatic yeast that you could maybe figure out. So you can deduce quite a bit just from looking at a wine and smelling in a wine. But not to figure out where it comes from, but like maybe turn a little bit about, you know, how it came to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think for people in, in my market, I'm looking for a more minimally intervened kind of wine. Mm-hmm. So...
2: No, that's yeah, and it's you know, my comments had nothing to do to take away with the work and the skills of, of yeah. my ability, but but yeah, I always but I kind of had this impression that it yeah, was a little we, bit of a a gimmick, a sales trick. Uh,
0: I, there's something
2: coolest guy in the restaurant. I mean, if you
0: if you look at a wine shop or you're uh, at a big restaurant, you're tasting with five, six, seven reps a day times how many days a week you want to taste. There are people who are tasting literally hundreds of wines every day on the market, and those people can develop this. Either it's a photo of my memory or they just understand certain markers and you can narrow things down, which is impressive, right? 100%. But for me, it's more on the farming story culture than going back to do
1: I want more. So here is a question. If you are, let's say, uh, you have the Bot dish we kind of like the farming style and we like the region, but his uh, wine, let's say this year his Kadar will kind of suck, would you still buy it? Because the story is there. And
0: then you get into like partnership and relationship is also a little bit of like a speed dating element. You know, there's, I've had great wines from absolute jerks. And I'm like, I just, I can't do it. <laughs> like I knew, I, I know the wine to do on the market, but do I want to interface with this person? Mm-hmm. Do I want to be in a real partnership with this person? And there is an element of like, you know what, my quality of life, I need something that actually works. So it's kind of like dating in a way. It's not just is, is he or she attractive and will it, would it be fun for a bit? <laughs> what's the long-term ramifications right um but i think you know you can work with partners to to make it work i mean and wine's such a variable you get one shot a year and there's so many things climatically in the vineyard disease pressure things in the cellar there's just so many things that can happen in a vintage that can drastically affect the wine right so you know that's again where the story comes into play we have a, another producer who uh, we have a a Kadarka from them, and this wine is drastically different than last year. They had impending rains in September, mm. and Kedarka is thin skin and prone to breakage. It's, you, you need to bring the food in. So this wine is like three or four shades lighter, much lower in intensity, but it's become part of the story about this is what happened in the vintage, and that wine is going to find a whole new audience and maybe I'll have to figure out new ways to sell it, but the wine is still good. It's still of that place. It's still reminiscent of their style. It's reflective of their farming. But it is a drastically different wine. So, I wouldn't blind sell it to someone who bought the last vintage. Right, that would be that, kind of in bad faith.
2: But yeah, the very fact of that year's struggles become part of the story. Become yeah. part of what makes that wine interesting. And and yeah, I, I'm I'm always very interested in inconsistency as much as consistency. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's sometimes where either happy happy accidents happen or. Yeah. Where you really do taste not just the place, but the time.
0: Yeah. To so, me, you know, I, I am a, a bit of a softy idea of having the kind of year encapsulated in the bottle. You know, mm-hmm. whenever I drink that 18 Kadarka five, six years from now, the first thing I'll remember is, oh, yeah, that was that crazy year where the rain came in. And they had to get the crew together and run out there and grab the fruit. And, you know, I, I like having that kind of olfactory memory kick in mm-hmm. and remind me what happened. It's also interesting, there's a, there's a winemaker locally, a French guy making wines, so Gideon Beanstalk, up in there, he makes a wine called close to Rome, and he has this really interesting idea of what the primary, secondary, tertiary aromas are, which may be different for coffee. The primary is exactly what's in the vineyard. When you're walking through, it's the dried leaves, the herbs in the cover crop, whatever trees are around, it's, it's something that's unique to being in a vineyard. You would only know primary if you were there. Secondary is what happens in the cellar, which is any kind of intervention, a racking, um, you know, yeasts, um, temperature, humidity, things that are unique to that cellar. And then tertiary is what happens in the bottle, mm-hmm. which is its own other life. Right. And so many times people think about uh, primary grain just fruit aromas. Well, that might not be the case in this sense, because unless there's a bunch of dried, you know, fallen apples and plums in the vineyard, maybe, But there is a sense that there's the vineyard, the cellar, and the the tertiary in the bottle. And for him, he's trying to eliminate as many variables in the secondary as possible to maintain the primary and the tertiary.
2: Yeah, interesting.
0: interesting. And people have other philosophies, but I like thinking about it that way. For me, it's very useful, especially if you travel to a vineyard, you visit the cellar, and you taste the wine. I like thinking about primary, secondary, tertiary in that way.
2: I think it's an
0: interesting way to go about it. And it keeps the farming central to the
1: idea of the wine, right? So it's kind of easy because you already answered my you know, main <laughs> topic of the podcast. So I think that, you know, the wine tasting is very much subjective then because, uh, everybody resonates with the story differently. You know, everybody, you know, resonates with, uh, all those, you know, things you said differently. Right. Like, somebody might not have any, you know, connection to Central Europe. and go like, oh, that story does not resonate with me. That somebody who knows the history and the place. you go like, oh, wow. You know? Yeah. So, uh, in a coffee world, we are a bit different because we are very technical about that coffee evaluation at first level. Then when you buy it, of course, you want to have a story. I mean, we also have to tell the story to people. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you, you you don't have in a wine industry something like a unified, let's say, tasting methodology? There is. I mean, there's different...
0: Um I had not been, um, technically trained in this, but like there's mm-hmm. between like, you know, like people like the song guild or the W set or people like that, they have, you know, ways to break down on a, on a scale of, you know, color, acid, intensity, um, you know, all these different things you can kind of isolate. Mm-hmm. Um, but since I'm selling the people who are then selling to a retail customer or someone table side. You know, for me, it's better to spend more energy on history, culture, the story, provided that the the farming and deliciousness is there. But there are ways when people, I've tasted buyers, you can see they're checking off their own list. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, if the wine's bricking in color on the outside, they're suggesting age or oxidation, or if they get, you know you know, they, they look for cloudiness for filtering, or they you can talk about the medium or the low intensity of the acid. Is it hot with alcohol? Mm-hmm. There are these things you can to a high degree figure out. Is this wine riddled with VA? <laughs> Does it have bread? Right. Is it court?
2: <laughs> no, it's interesting to hear you talk about like how the supply chain maybe impacts at what point it's important to be more technical versus less. And when you think about coffee, it's Yeah, like a coffee importer or a roasting company might need to be more technical than the sales rep for a roaster. I think you need to
0: have the technical information at the ready. If a buyer wants to know what's the final total acidity in the wine Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis the residual sugar... I should be able to pull up that data and give it to them.
1: But you can measure that with tools, and with your tongue. And, and coffee.
0: With and I history. have to get labs of all my wines. So the FDA to prove the wine in the first place, so I can literally—it's not based on any kind of bias. I can hand them a document that says this is what they, with degrees of margins of error, of course, is measuring anything. And wines ideally are alive and changing as they age. But you can get a general sense of some of those things. You know, if the VA is over one gram, that's an issue. <laughs> Um but yeah, he's a volatile acidity. Volatile acidity, yeah. But you know, then you have buyers who appreciate some of those. There's there are flaws, and then there are people who associate those flaws with styles. You know, mm-hmm. there are big reds with a little bit of bread that people absolutely enjoy, and it's part of the cellar culture, it's part of the terroir there. Mm-hmm. There are people who have like super high acid rich whites that have a little bit of volatile acidity. And there are certain faults. I think most people cannot abide, you know, like a wine being fully corked. However, there are people who can down a bottle and go and high five with the enemy and be like, that was fantastic. And
2: those those people
0: I think are kind of low level superheroes, you know, they're not bogged down by (laughs) these kind of things. Even like the mousiness we talked about, there's a part of the population that
1: can't pick it up on the retronasal. Yeah. 30% population. It's a very interesting fault, which, you know, First, it has, you have to initiate it with your saliva, yeah. some acidity or your skin, right? Yeah. We talked about it. So you don't smell it in a glass. Yeah. Then it initiates in you. Some people are very sensitive to it and some people are blind to it. And actually in coffee, we have similar issues like phenol. We, when we do the Q grader courses, we notice that some people just cannot pick it up. It smells like, I, I puke from it. it smells horrible. But I some get people, a headache instantly. I can right.
2: literally can. And some people are lunch, like
0: brewing in the pot.
2: Just miss it. and miss it entirely. <laughs> yeah. And Failed so I,
0: I think there's a wonderful bliss in that, um, I think, but yeah, on a professional level, I think you should be able to at least notice when those things are mm-hmm. spiking or, you know, a little bit out of balance. And that's obviously, I think that it's related to coffee and wine is essentially balance. Mm-hmm. Like, does right. the wine kind of capture a whole, whole range of flavors and textures and weights and, you know, which I think is also linked to, to, to being tasty. And sometimes I'm having really fatty food, I want a really acid, high acid wine that technically is a little bit unbalanced on its own. So there's a, there's a
1: store. Is it you though. or is, so he, okay, you opened a, That's Pandu- first yeah. okay, so opened a Pandora's box now, <laughs> wine pairing. You know, I love wine by itself. That's how I think about it. I never really pair it and think with food. I mean, and a lot of people kind of criticize me for that. It's like. Oh, you have to always eat it with food. I say, no, I want to experience it in purity. And then, yeah, I enjoy it with food, but I cannot think about it anymore with food. So, how is oh, it a but BS? And
2: your your last Instagram post talking about bottling your our wine and how it's going to be with pizza. You're, you always do,
1: you're, you're always, you always, <laughs> do always do this to me. You always do this. I think we reached an edit point. <laughs> 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 no, I
2: don't. These no, are fun. These are these are because <laughs> it's fun when I see him. We well, like, here's
0: yeah. an example. There's common, <laughs> there are common pairing things that are out there, probably in books or people were handed down things, you know, like the idea of white wine with fish, red wine with meat. And mm-hmm. then you go to the, the Dalmatian coast and it's <laughs> almost the complete opposite. You're drinking uh, Puah Vat Somali with their oyster seaside, a big tannic, yeah, high acid, ruby red. So it's personal. It's not something somebody will tell control. you. It's like, you know, I think that what, what grows together, goes together has some. I've experienced that to have some validity, I might not like
1: it, but there are
0: also people in the Loire who drink their Cab Franc with their oysters.
1: Okay. Are, are they wrong? So I should, I should. my vineyard in Slovakia is well beets, so I should have the wine with beets. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's like, give it a whirl.
1: So, you know, I think there is a
0: kind of all, I think a red line for me is that, you know, it all comes back to context, you know, it's kind of like the honeymoon effect, you know, Oh, we had this wine in Italy on our honeymoon, and they come back and buy it here. It's an absolute just nothing, because they experience it in this kind of you know golden sunset on Cinque Terre or something, and it's imbued Dilla with this other place. leaf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then they get back here, it's just like a supermarket
1: whatever wine. You <laughs> but, know, but that's totally normal. I mean, it's yeah. the same. Like when I go to so Hawaiian coffee, in most cases especially 10 years ago, it was a little bit boring for me. Always when I had it here, I was like, oh, it's over overpriced. It's yeah. you know, it's very basic. But then you go to Hawaii and you have the same coffee <laughs> and it's the best thing ever. And that's I realized, you know, the place where you enjoy these things does make like incredible sense. I mean, if I can add it 100%. Like,
2: I, I always yeah. tell, tell clients who are coffee buyers and roasters, it's like, don't buy coffee on a trip. You're going to be... Falling in love with some producer, building this relationship, (laughs) enjoying rum at night, up at the top of the farm with a view out over the valley. In the morning, you're in the cupping lab, and these coffees are all going to taste better than they might back in your own home. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, for instance, I don't order Turkish-style coffee here very often. However, in Turkey, oh, I yeah. loved order because you know, depending on what little shop you're in, you know, you can turn after you finish the coffee, you turn the mug over onto your saucer, mm-hmm. and some old lady or man is going to read your fortune.
2: That's beautiful. Then I'm like,
0: I, I want the Turkish coffee because I want the fortune telling reading afterwards. Yep.
1: But it's- also, the whole street smells like Turkish coffee. You <laughs> kind of like go <laughs> like, yeah, your right. like,
2: yes, the Gemini in Ethiopia.
1: Yeah, yeah, so like, so into but I don't t- wake t- up here
0: and go, oh, i got to get coffee this morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although the boy, I like the
2: Javada when I go to the Ethiopian market in Oakland, and it's like, you know, you, see, you that. see the green coffee yeah, you get it, you know, know
0: even like, I, oh, you know, of, of, I live in Sacramento, and, you know, all these great um, ethnic markets, yeah, mainly um, from the Middle East, and I walk in there and I need the giant drums of sour cherries, which is a Persian thing that you also find a lot of Hungarian cooking, mm. Slovakian cooking, and all of a sudden... I want to make a sour cherry soup with a dill mm-hmm. and creme fraiche. <laughs> and I just, you just, it just it hits you sometimes, Oh, perfect! but also going back to what you think about, you know, tasting a, uh, maybe a, a, a green bean somewhere or cupping on location on the wine side, as importers, we're tasting unfinished wines in barrel or tank or clay or concrete or what have you. Right. And that wine is still early in its, its life, but as an importer, you guys are making some reservations and some decisions. And there's still, you know, for the wines that we import which are all, you know, spontaneously f- fermented, largely and filtered, some without any additions at all, some with a little bit of sulfur at bottling. These wines have a long way to go. Um, but you have to make that initial judgment, on, like how does it hit you? How Wait. do you think it's how do you think this wine's going to go? And also trusting the winemaker who knows it better than anybody. Can you influence the winemaker's decision as an importer? Um, I'm sure one that had more power than I do. I mean, for instance, you know, there's a story with a French importing with Kermit Lynch where, you know, he basically said, as far as I understand, you know, I don't want any of the wines to be filtered going forward or I won't buy them. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a huge, then people did it. I never really tried that. Usually I try to find a winemaker who's already doing what he or she loves and then I just grab onto it because, I mean, who am I? I guess I'm... It's a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little preachy on my part to be like, but you know, for instance, I can say, you know what? I want you to use a better cork. Mm. I want you to use a better capsule. I want you to, there are certain things that make a huge difference, you know, on that I can control and will pay extra for.
2: Technical things that are in the preview of an Yeah. Right. Things that you do know and understand. Yeah. I know how wine
0: travels from deep in the Matra to San Francisco. They don't know that. Yep. So there are, there is a, and also I know my clientele and they want to see a certain stability and quality and how the wine's put together. And that comes into also bottles, of course. Yeah. So there is influence on that level, but I wouldn't go in there and be like, you really should, you know, stop racking until bottling or, you know, I I, I would be... Maybe in 20 years when I'm, you know, whatever. But uh, I can't imagine myself ever telling a producer something like that.
2: And it sounds like what you're asking for are things that you sort of... You also would understand what the economic impact would be. And, you know, you would expect to pay more for 200 cases of wine with a higher quality cork. Yeah. Like and a, and a marginally... Well, here's also, there are also
0: people from. who are making wines um, because a lot of places that I work with, they don't come from very strong economies. And sometimes the wines need to be sold on the local market and that local market is perhaps a lot different than my market here. For instance, I have like a, a leader project that comes out of Austria, big beautiful leaders of a uh, belt and below Frankish mm. and the farming is on point. I'm very happy with it. I like the people quite a bit, but there was kind of this rush to get the wine to market and have it filtered and pushed through Malo so the wine was stable. So then they could also make sure to sell it on the home market at a certain time. Mm. And now that we've kind of built up the market for this wine, I've been like, you know what? Let's let nature take its course and let mallow run through completely on its own and don't filter until you've fully done it. Which is risky if you don't filter and there's a little bit left because the bottle can re from it, which is bad. <laughs> but ultimately I think because I'm buying so much of that wine vis-a-vis their production, And I'm willing to take this chance, which again, this is the wine that they want to make. They're just Mm -hmm. want the insurance policy that I'm going to buy enough of it to make it worth it for them. And the risk is then falling back onto me.
2: Right. If it goes wrong, you own that wine and it's here.
1: Yes. So it's risky for me, but ultimately I know that's the wine that they want to drink. How about, I mean, we do a lot of education for coffee farmers. And I know sometimes it's very mild and sometimes pretty arrogant, right?
2: No, it's, it's tough in coffee because it can, you spoke about kind of the arrogance if you were to come in and being very prescriptive. And I see this occasionally with coffee buyers, like they work for a roasting company. They know what they want. They come in, they land and they suddenly are experts in coffee processing <laughs> and fermentation. Yeah. And it's dangerous. I mean, because it's, it's a farmer's livelihood. It might be their only income for the year on the line. I think it's a little different if, um, If like Willem and I are working with a farmer, we're not going to be prescriptive in the same way for a farmer with almost no resources who's scraping together all of their pennies to work with us. We're going to give them very straightforward feedback, standards-based feedback, introduce them to local experts in their country. We don't want blood on our hands from a mistake that goes wrong. you know, which might be different from somebody who's already being highly experimental and is asking for our prescriptions to maybe improve taints that we're finding or issues that we're tasting or just saying, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Help me find the best path forward. There's a little,
0: there's a little give and take. So, yeah. So I would say that when I know a producer wants to do something, but they're hesitant, then I can try to offer them the financial security that it's still going to be okay. Mm -hmm. At the same time, obviously it's hugely (laughs) a massive risk for me. But I'm trusting on this occasion and I think ultimately it'll make wine that they're more happy with and I want to drink more of and people will, will like more here.
2: How, how many of your customers want to come with you and visit and meet these producers? Is that a common... All the ones that I like. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, I, I wish I had the budget for that. You know, I've, um, I work for... I another, yeah, <laughs> Work for, I mean, I got my start in this world with another company, uh, Blue Daniel Wine Company, which basically gave me my in on this world. And my first trip to to wineries was with Frank uh, Dietrich and Juzana, his wife, who owned the company. They since retired. But yeah, I mean, I would love for each of these wines to spark in people the desire to travel here. And ultimately that is what Mm -hmm. makes the the, uh, ultimate connection. And vice versa, having the people who make these wines come over here and see where is their wine being poured. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a great, one of my favorite producers in, uh, in Toklai, kind of the, the Bat Pinza, Judith y- y- Yosef. Um, I think it was their first time to San Francisco and their wine was by the glass at the Sun Ador. Big, beautiful Vietnamese restaurant, mm-hmm. wonderful people, one of my favorite buyers in the city. And it's, you know, overlooking the Bay Bridge, it's overlooking the Bay, it's a very, you know, big experience and they got there and saw their wine next to all these other famous wines of the world and it made her cry in a happy way yeah. but she was like i can't believe that the wine from our little village in tokai is with these names at this place yeah. so it's important for us to go there and it's also equally important that they actually come here and see what's happened to their wines I mean, so to it's, it's
2: it's so, so special it. yeah.
0: because otherwise they're just moving a product and a commodity
2: yeah.
0: and they might as well be selling Soil or (laughs) a mineral or something. A
2: producer I worked with, a coffee producer for many years, um, Christian Mora was kind of leading up a cooperative of coffee farmers in Costa Rica. And I was working for a roasting company, Batdorf & Bronson at the time. Mm. The importer that brings his coffee in brought Christian to Portland, Oregon at the time. And I remember standing with Christian behind the bar at a bakery that sold a ton of his coffee, the Pearl Bakery, and having him... Connect with customers and consumers and taste that coffee. I yeah. later worked for that importer and got to know Christian even more, but seeing the power of making the investment to bring the producer to the customers yeah. rather than the customers to the producer is so scary. And I
0: wish I could do a lot more of that on both sides. I wish one, sadly most of the countries I work with have little to new, little to no budget for this, as opposed to more subsidized wine markets like Greece or Spain or France or Italy or Germany. But I think that's changing, hopefully, a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I had more time and more money, it would be almost exclusively on bringing people together on the basis of tasting and seeing these, these places right. and these wines. Absolutely. I think we we'll people go there, it's not so much the honeymoon effect. They actually see the family. They see what they do. And for most of all, they have no experience of what actually is growing wine, even the harvest. If you, if you actually ask the average person to go pick even a half ton of grapes by themselves... They would be physically and emotionally alarmed
2: <laughs> at the end
0: of work, 100%. not to mention the entire year of, Oh my God, this thing could be destroyed at any moment Yep. and that's their livelihood. And you know, I would wish that everyone could work even a brief part of harvest because one, your appreciation of all wines would skyrocket, even just a mediocre wine, wherever you'd be like, well, you know, didn't come from nothing. <laughs> you have this additional, um, mm-hmm. appreciation. But it does, again, goes back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast, is context. You know, these people are not living high in the hog. They're putting everything they make, they invest right back in.
2: And it's, a, and it's a cultural
0: identity. I mean, you can speak to this, Valerian. As this part of the world experienced quite a few different occupations and wars and border changes and everything. One of the, uh, the few things I think cannot be taken are language, food, and beverage. Totally. You can move everything else but those three things and anything in particular you cannot take from people and when you actually go to these border regions which I think are the most fascinating places to drink wine your hometown being a great example and oh, well, literally thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to you know cut your toes a little bit but you know these areas where you really have because maybe your border did get moved from where you ethnic identified right, with well then you you go hard on your farming your grapes your foods your oils whatever.
1: And places like this make products like this. Mm-hmm. Example, and my, fantastic. My grandfather lived the same apartment for actually house and apartment for you know all his life. He exchanged seven different states and regimes. Wow. Yeah. He was born before the first world war. He died a little bit after we split from um, Czechoslovakia. It's just. Mind oh, blowing me. seven yeah. different regimes and states that's wars and dollar revolutions, and different all money, different yeah. language, you know, different yeah. everything.
0: It's I've been in some cellars where you can find four different capsules on the wines from the same land. Wow, you know, this is Incredible. part of Austria, part of Slovenia, part of Yugoslavia, awesome. part yeah. region, you know, yeah, yeah it's, it's the same the five stars, it, it's never changed.
2: Wow,
0: um, so yeah, so I think there's a there's a wonderful kind of borderlessness of wine, even though those borders are what make those wines so kind of profound in a certain way.
1: Do you know what's most intimidating for uh, people who you know come to wine tasting? It's finding the descriptors. Yes. yes. So what what would you suggest? You know.
0: I, I have an annoying response to your question in that I um, I don't try to give descriptors Okay. on the sales side. If you look at most of my tech sheets, although I've gotten lazy here and there, I don't try to dictate what the wine tastes like. Um, well, don't you ask people, like, what does it remind yeah, you? Yeah, I might ask people what they, what they think, but I think once you introduce what you think is already happening, you're already, you're, you're mudding the waters a bit. Right. If I go... Well, this is an area famous for marasca, sour cherries. And also the the, the, the beers here are famous and their are different liquors. Your brain is already completely oh, off the reservation yep. and it's not oh. fair, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I understand that people order wine on that basis mm-hmm. or they want something fruity, they want something tart, or they want something, whatever it is. So at the end of our tasting, sometimes I'll say with the winemaker, how they would, he or she would describe the wine.
2: Hmm.
0: And in certain cases, what I kind of like about the wine, but only once the tasting is completely commenced and finished and they've either made their choice or not.
2: Right. But I, and I love what you said kind of at the beginning of this podcast. And it echoes some things that I've been talking with the students you met in our lab today. Yeah. Um, about, you know, when you do these, whatever it could be, a formal sensory test or a casual tasting, it's like watch and see after everything's commenced, what do they finish the glass? Of? Yeah. It tells you more. Again, what do they Any yes. score sheets, any. When the
0: academia is done, what do you go? Oh, I'd love to sit down and have that.
2: A hundred percent.
0: And there is just, there is that thing. Yeah. I also would say that, you know, I think it is fascinating, different parts of the world where the cuisine is so different or maybe the oils change, you know, like in certain these no- northern places, like for the wine we have now for Frigesh, you know, you're not having olive oil. You're probably having pumpkin seed oil Mm -hmm. or walnut oil. Right. You're already changing the whole vibe of what you're eating and drinking at that place. And as I've noticed with skin contact wines, where we make kind of white wines more in the red wine modality with longer time on the skins to macerate, you're less about fruits and those kind of things. You're more on flowers, nuts, and, Mm. you know, herbs and teas. So it also depends on the kind of wine I think also changes whatever flavor wheel or, 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 or Rolodex you have in your head to a different setting. Interesting. Like skin contact wines are almost tea, not flour. It's not like, oh, this skin contact wine is screaming of strawberries and cherries,
2: mm-hmm. right?
0: right? It can happen. I'm just
1: saying in general, like, at least in my part of the world, I skin think, contact, you mean the white, yeah, the white processed, like you would process yes. red grapes because these are coffee people. Yeah. So just like, yeah. yeah. Right
2: yeah yeah so you know, like I you. maceration period yeah your yeah.
1: your higher temp shorter what i
0: don't know the exact terminology of coffee but you know you might have a, a certain kind of coffee roast a certain kind of way a certain kind of bean that has it's more acid and floral as opposed to you know chocolate and spite or whatever it is yeah. 100 so percent. so i think you have to kind of approach the wine geographically and climatically and winemaking wise and kind of adjust mm-hmm. to
2: that so, so all of this leads me to a question because you came in and we kind of you know, invited you into our world a little bit. You yes. tasted some coffee. You saw some, some new coffee cuppers struggling to be...
0: Yeah, there was some coffee slurped and sipped and spit.
2: Yeah, so, so Eric came in um, as he got here. I had some students in the lab for a sensory course attempting their first cupping. And not only their first... They had cupped before, but their first attempt at calibration and scoring coffee. Where we're trying to be super objective you know, calibration, this idea that we should be within a fairly narrow range of our assessment of coffees. I mean, what do you think about that? Just, I mean, and you can be, you can say it's bullshit. You can say that was really cool. And I think it's interesting. I'm just curious. Well, I'm I, curious. I actually had
0: a hyper reflexive moment. Is like, Jesus, is that how like you look at me when I taste wine? Because <laughs> <laughs> there is this like, okay, take yourself a little less seriously, Eric. No, I think there is something so interesting about focusing on something that most people just have kind of haphazardly. Like, as we were talking earlier, I wake up, I have my coffee preset in the cone for drip. I hit the on switch and I pray for it to beep so I can get it into the cup and get my day started. Or with wine, I open it, I pour it out at the right temperature, I swirl it, I sit down, I'm calmly, I'm looking forward to a nice meal. It's really unfair to think about it. You know, I'm just whipping through coffee. But I'm Mm -hmm. I'm savoring the wine. And it was fun to see someone actually slow down and smell just the roasted bits in the cup. And then you pour the water in, but let it just steep. And then you, is it called? Breaking?
2: Yeah, breaking the crust. Breaking the
0: crust. And then after that, and then you skim off that and then analyze the coffee. And I've been drinking coffee since... I was a teenager, I never once engaged in any of those four elements of coffee. A hundred percent. I just poured it's, over and I drink it.
2: And we talked a little bit about the purpose for that. and you know, yes, I think this, so I think, so,
0: I think there's definitely something to it. and I should uh, think more intently about my coffee in that respect. Well, no, and it was I, funny, the one I, that I liked was the one you were like, yeah, that's the more common coffee. And another one I was like, oh, that's definitely something a little different. And it, that was it's the, the famous more,
2: question of which do you prefer versus which yeah. might be the higher quality. Sometimes they match up, sometimes they don't. don't yeah. yeah,
1: Also price. Yeah, yeah. Which,
2: which I do think. I mean, and Valerian, you primed us with some questions before we sat down, but one of them that I think kind of informs this discussion is just the question, what determines the value of a wine mm. or who determines the value of a wine versus the question who determines the value of coffee?
0: Yeah, I mean, they're both, I guess, essentially... You know, luxury items to some degree, you know. I think wine. <laughs> oh, come on, The wine is. Well, far. I say that in that I couldn't live with either of them being out of my life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're not. Um, there are things that some people just kind of grab the whatever, you know. They just go to the market, they see the one that's, uh, you know, between eight and ten dollars, and they grab that because it's, you know, it's like buying on brand, not buying on anything else.
2: Right. And yeah, the coffee equivalent would be the stopping at the Seven Eleven because you know at least it's yeah it's brewed consistently and it's the line will be short up. you
0: get a big old cup and, and it's, and it's a cheap buck. and you're on your way. Right? right? So there's a way of approaching wine and coffee the very same right. way and then it's like you know what I'm looking forward to going to a small shop where I know the person telling them what I'm looking for or having them build me a mixed case of things they might find interesting based on other purchases or right. giving them a price point and have them kind of Lead you a little army traveling around different parts of the world. Right. So there's 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 a 7-Eleven approach, which again, you know, I'm going to the airport and I'm late. That's happening. Yep. You know, I'm, uh, not, me, I'm not I'm not dogging that me idea. Me too. I'm
2: not. I'm maybe not personally. And then okay. you know, and then you're, you're,
0: you're at a wedding and you want to celebrate and you're like, yeah, I will have this wine tonight, even though it's not something I'd ever go for on my own. Like what Fidushka? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I <laughs> love no, this one. Um, well, no. So so I would say you know. Yeah, the value, I think, at least in my kind of is, niche. And
2: so the, the question of value isn't like the sort of hypothetical value, but the value is you sell this wine for a certain number of dollars per yes. bottle. Who was kind of, where did that process of determining that price start?
0: Well, there is essentially an ex-seller price from the winery, yep. which, you know, depending on how you buy wine and the size of the production and what percentage you're buying, there's a little bit of, you know, haggling that can oh, go of on, course. but within a small margin, it's going to be based on a certain price. right? And then you have, at least from Europe, you have all the freight prices and you have the different approvals for different things. And and all the of FDA. the that an importer. You know, yeah. The, the margin, 100%, you know, yeah. I don't know what, how we look at looking at a bag of coffee, you know, what percentage of, the, of what you spend is actually coffee right. versus packaging, bureaucracy. Shipping, yeah, taxes, all the that goes on, right?
2: And and yeah, and, and the reason that I kind of asked that, and maybe I asked it kind of forcefully, um, yeah. You know, so yeah, there's a there's a woman who studies coffee, Kate Fisher. She's a, mm. on the faculty at the University of Colorado, and I've taken a course with her. And I think she put it more succinctly than just about anybody when, again, talking about this wine and coffee comparison. And she's like, you know, so the the value in a bottle of wine comes largely from the producer the producer kind of knows what their costs are they kind of know the quality that they have and yeah and boom you know, that's your ex-seller price coffee doesn't work that way right coffee is a global commodity that's traded the way that oil or sugar or other commodities are yeah and absolutely. in a commodity world the price is all determined by the cost of the cons- the, the what the consumer is willing to bear
0: yeah. That's not so much part of my, I mean, it does factor in. I mean, I, I want these wines yeah. to get exposure. No, no I mean, one's walking into a cover shop being like, you know, what kind of Kadarka do you have currently? Like, it's just not right, I happen mean, it, right a now. A few people might, but yeah, yeah. It's,
2: it's the exception. And it's, you know, and it is the fact that, you know, when you know, the Chronicle always loves to do an article when a cafe has a $20 cup of coffee, right? It's yeah. like, what the, it's a, this it's is crazy. A,
0: yeah.
2: Um, yeah, but I love that because I think it does kind of push the question of you know, the I producer knew what their value was, because but most
0: coffees... I would say because I want the wines to to really be kind of have people take a bit of a chance on, I'm seeking out wines that meet my farming criteria and seller criteria, but can be sold by the glass in restaurants yeah. or in that 15 to 30 retail range. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I obviously import wines outside of that range, but that to me is the sweet spot of like... Right. Who will give this wine a chance? Who knows right. nothing of the grape, the place, the people, anything, you know? And that's the, for me, the sweet spot for most of the wines import. And again, I have exceptions, but those have been built over time. So yeah, I am looking for a certain product. Oh, do I buy yeah. all the wines from this producer?
2: No. No, of course not. Of course not. To. Yeah.
0: But I do want to find there is that 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 window of opportunity when I'm breaking wines into a new market. Now, again... I imagine that would be different if I was importing more well-known wines, right. say a Pinot Noir or a Sauvignon Blanc or a Sancerre or a Pinot mm-hmm. Grigio, which are more known on the marketplace. And maybe there is a baseline price to quality ratio. show. But in a certain sense, you know, when you're importing wines like this for the first time in the United States, this is only like the second vintage that's been imported in the United States. I essentially could price set to a degree be like, you know what, I'm the first person to do this. This could cost 50 bucks. <laughs> oh, no. Take it or leave it, right? No,
2: that's But
0: that good. defeats the idea of going to get this wine out, right? right. And right. I do have to make a certain amount of margin because I have to, it's a business.
2: Oh, of course. And-
0: but I don't think people get into the wine business, at least on this smaller level, importing from smaller family productions. You're not in it for the easy money. Right. No. There are other ways to do it, even in wine. Right. You know, go do national sales or that kind of thing. You, you could make, you know, relative big, big money. You're doing this more, I think, for a lifestyle.
2: 100%.
0: And a certain ability to travel and have connections and still live a decent life. But, you know... I, you know, otherwise I'd go into, you know, commercial real estate and stock market or something, right. there's other ways to make money apart from no, importing Slovakian and Hungarian wines. And I don't think any
1: food makes real money, especially you know, if you work in a specialty world, it's something fascinating. It's something interesting. It's, it's really like you have to have passion for it, Yeah, which is not enough, by the way, no. you have <laughs> no. to have also business savvy, but that said, if you want a quality life, you do this, what we do, but if you want to uh, be rich, I mean, stock market, Banking. Yeah. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with the corporate level of coffee or wine. Yeah. And, and
0: there's, there's nothing wrong with that. that. There's nothing no, wrong with no, that. that. They just I want, affect.
1: we need those people
0: to buy the wine and coffee. Exactly. exactly.
2: <laughs> but I, I, I do think it's yeah, the reason why anyway, we've got these kind of crazy procedures with coffee and things is, you know, and the reason that we have these protocols that are kind of international, is we want to give the producer a fair price in setting the value of that coffee, which isn't the case right.
1: Yeah. Most coffee
2: right now is traded at a price far below the cost of production for the farmers. One
1: dollar around, right? Is that it's
2: quality? about $1 per yeah. pound right now. Yeah. For yeah. green coffee to... A...
0: Is there like an OPEC of coffee?
2: Well, I mean, it's the, it's the <laughs> fact that it's a global commodity. And there maybe yeah. needs to be an OPEC of coffee. Somebody that's representing the producers. And, and you know, Colombia is interest. talking about this. Like, what is the cost of production? What is the cost of profitability for a farmer? It's probably around two fifty dollars a pound. Which is what specialty coffee, which is a huge
0: uptick from where it is currently.
2: Exactly. So, so that's- I mean, we,
0: we have that right now. For instance, I haven't, I have not, I'm not hyper versed on this, but you know, the current uh, administration is levying these 25% taxes on certain wines from, I think, you know, France and Italy and Germany. Mm. That's you know, you look at 20%. That is basically you know, depending on your margin, that could be your entire profit margin depending on what kind of business in the wine you're doing, you know, the bigger, the smaller, the margin, the more quantity, the smaller wine you want to import, you have a higher margin, but that's because it's relative. Right. And we'll see how that works out. People have wine, you know, reserved and going to be shipped over. That's going to be subject to those tariffs that were pre-sold to clients here. How's that going to work out? I don't know. Yeah. Will people still pay stuff. $30 for a coat to run when they were paying 22 before? I don't know. And is that still undervalued maybe that wine does deserve to be cost that much you know so i think those will be interesting things to figure out and so far this part of the
1: world is um untouched by those tariffs but that's not to me they couldn't be
2: right
1: so there is a movie i was watching recently it's called you will be my son have you seen that no it's a it's a wine family whatever it's a eh, whatever it's if you like wine and i like to watch wine family movies it's yeah. something worth watching, but there's a uh, one moment when the, when the father kind of is really angry about his son because he finds different flavor descriptors than <laughs> he does. And in a coffee... breaking with the, with the family in some ways. No, no, he was angry that he cannot give, him, give his vineyard over to him. So the point is that, you know, in a coffee world, we always teach people that the descriptors come from your previous experiences. So if I have a different experience than Marcus does, I would come up with a different, you know... Um, explanation for the for the coffee so is the in a, is the wine world so strict that you have to come up with the same stuff or is the wine world really like ours that basically it depends on you as a person yeah i think there's um yeah i don't know
0: i mean i think it's, i mean again i work in such a niche i mean if you look at what small importers impact the market i don't have these stats in front of me but we're talking single digit percentiles of the u.s market you know, most of the wine sold in the United States is through, I think, three or five companies. You don't know it because there's a million sub brands and second labels and purchase things, you know. But the amount of people doing what I'm doing in terms of the American
1: market, it's very, very small. Okay, so you taste wine and you're, uh, there's uh, two guys there and say, you know, you say, oh, it's, you know, this very strawberry bubblegum, whatever. And the guy comes, no, it actually reminds me of, uh, Mano is a, a raspberry. Uh, would you get angry at him? I would never get angry. <laughs> would you get I annoyed would... <laughs> about it? Okay. Would you get
0: annoyed about it? Um, I would get. I would get annoyed if they thought that that wasn't a part of the wine that they liked. You know what I mean? Like I don't mind how they get to it as long as they find it delicious. Okay, gotcha. So people can have their own little circuitous, uh, you know, routes to what they find. It's fine. But if someone is finding a wine, you know, even though I say endlessly that I don't mind if you don't like, like the wine, of course I do. I spent a lot of time and money <laughs> and research and stuff to bring these wines here. If someone's like, hey, "This one's horrible," I'll be like, "Oh, it's your, it's your opinion," but deep, deep down, I'm like, "You're wrong."
2: But you if you an so a element, that, cherry, and you're like, "No, oh, it reminds me more of
0: bergamot," I don't care. Yeah. No, <laughs> if there, I think. There's a certain element, in maybe this is true in coffee, where if the buyer has enough enthusiasm about the wine and the staff gets behind the wine, you can sell anything. And I'm one of the few people that actually can say that. Because I have sold stuff on the market that people thought would be impossible. You know, whether it's UFORG from Shomlo or Kuvidinka from the the, the the from Serbia or these grapes that have never been Literally never been imported in the United States before. And did, you, and did, did being people sold, think you
2: would never sell them because, just because of the variety and where they're from? Or they're was just, there something yeah, in, the, I in mean, the glass that was I do,
0: Here's sports. one thing I do take issue with. See <laughs> <and this will, laughs> so yeah, how this goes over. Maybe a good end point, uh, Valerian. Is, don't worry. Don't if, is yeah, is is <laughs> I'm going to give you a high five right yeah. <laughs> now. I want See how like burn. <laughs> no, I do take issue with um, people saying, oh, this is just esoterica. Oh. Or this is, you know, when I, when I find wines of mine that are in the wines from off the beaten path or esoteric whites or whatever, I'm like, to you. But if you're in this place, they're the standard table oh, wine yeah. of the whole community. For in some cases, back to the
1: Illyrians, pre-Roman.
0: Right. <laughs> right. So if you're saying this is esoteric? Or you know, they, you they know, wouldn't say so. You know
1: what Parker said? That you know, he had certain varieties He said, these are noble varieties, everything else is shit. Yeah, which again, you go back to the Dukes of Burgundy and be no, like, no. you know what? Pino's the great
0: that Gamay bullshit. It's just the people. Or, you know, the 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 Hoinish wines versus the Frankish wines. Just because Charlemagne liked one or the other, and right. we demote an entire area of wine to right. lower level. It's, all oh, that is BS. And people should think about that being like, okay, they're fascinating historical things. This king thought the wines from this area were proper, so they get the
1: Frankish. These get the Hoinish.
2: Okay. Does this remind you of Robusta and Arabica? It
1: does, but, you know, <laughs> okay, to be to be honest, I really hate robusta, No, you know, I don't, And you didn't yeah. prove me wrong. So I, I, I have a very open mind. You know, I like to with different rioters. But, but do you
2: like that just because of some ancient historical precedent that set the world on a path to prefer... No, people. because
1: if I taste it, it tastes to me like burnt rubber, and I don't enjoy that. So there are those exceptions, right? <laughs> not, not because something was wrong historically a
0: thousand years ago makes it right today. But one that does bother me is when someone says... Oh, I can't sell this here. Mm. No, that means you can't sell this here.
2: Yeah, you are, you, Eric, are you, selling it here. Yeah, you're here for you're
0: to... turning into the seller now. I bought it. I'm selling it to you. Your job is not just to buy it and magically margin itself into profit. You have to actually burn some calories on this project. And what makes me frustrated sometimes is like, oh, my clientele won't like this. How do you no. know that? Yeah. Just because it doesn't taste like your top five-selling wines, okay, that just seems like such an arbitrary, lazy position to me. And of course, we know wines. We we forget how much these wines change in not such a long time. You know, I was, I'm fascinated in California wine, um, despite my investments in Central Europe. But, you know, you look at um, I think you know Lodi, for instance. I think up until the late '80s. Chenin Blanc was the, I think, second or third most planted grape. Mm. You know? Okay. That's when I was alive. And now, you know, we're in Napa, you know, when was Chardonnay and Pinot Noir statistically relevant? Not as long as you think. We're talking like, you know, again, 80s, 90s. So. If in my lifetime, huge profiles have changed in taste and, and you know, we were drinking cream sherry out of Thompson seedless not too long ago <laughs> in your lifetimes. And now we think that everyone should be just having, you know, these high-end Cabernets or whatever. That's a relatively recent phenomenon. So, that I, so to get back to my point without rambling too much is I think that I like to find people who are excited the fact that they can trailblaze a new part of the world Celebrate a new kind of culture to most people and actually, you know, it's exciting. There's never, there's no end to the wine world if you think that way. And again, the more you drink these, you know, whatever Slovakian, Hungarian, Serbian wines, they'll make the wines you have become accustomed to that much more interesting. They'll refresh you for your Sauvignon Blanc, your Zinfandel, your Chardonnay, your Pinot Noir. You'll appreciate those in a whole new light when you do this. I think... There's a huge, for me, I got a speech, I can't remember who it was, but it was, you have to break your routine every so often. Yeah. We get the same takeout. We make the same meals at home. We have our routines, which is comforting and it's nice. Yeah. But once in a while, you know what? Make a dish from a cookbook that you haven't used in years. And if the cookbook is, you know, from, uh, you know, turkey, you know, good, or Otolenghi something, get some that you kind of see from Turkey and put some music on and, you know, take yourself out of your comfort zone once in a while and then come back again. And I feel like my portfolio and many portfolios like it offer people this relatively cheap way to do that.
2: That's really cool. You
0: know, make some, um, you know, fisherman soup from Hungary with a nice kadarka, put on some good gypsy jazz or whatever. And oh. for one night, you're not doing the same thing you've done the other five minutes prior. For
1: full disclosure, Marcus, I don't know if you know, but all the wines we made together this year are threaded in Hungarian folk music. There I you know, go. I know. So, okay, cool. Because so sonically influenced right there. Yeah. You know, it's, so, you know, it's <laughs> Maybe
2: not all of them because we made one at my
1: house. Right. <laughs> what kind of music do you use? No, we hate music at my house. Oh, come on. <laughs> That's such a bullshit. No. Now, you should, you should no, blind them you on that wine and see I if I they know, can exactly. figure it out, right? You can taste that. Yeah. The no, but, you know, it's totally true. And, you know, if you work in a coffee or any food uh, world, you should not have acquired taste. We you know what I hate the most when I send out samples of coffee, for example, and they tell me, I don't like it. I was like, you know, F you. There's, there's nothing just do like. It. If you tell me, you know, your coffee was too acidic, my customers will probably not like this. I was like, oh, I get it. Okay, yeah, it's not done. a match. Yeah. But if you tell me, I don't like it, one word. I was like, I sent you the samples. You know, my people roasted it. You know, we spend money on postage and you don't have a decency to tell me what's wrong with the coffee. Yeah, Come on, man. It's yeah, really- do you
2: try that as an importer of coffee and you send out 10 samples to somebody who requested them and crickets. You never hear... Any feedback of any kind back? They never buy coffee? Yeah. All. yeah.
0: It's like if, it's a, chef, if like a, a restaurant sets you on to a test dish because you're a local and they wanted to see if you liked it and you are just kind of yeah. like, eh.
2: It's fine. So it's, it's like, okay. that's just like,
0: yeah. again, and, and, and what burn a few the, calories exactly. on like, you did this thing for me, let me, let me pay it back in equal motion.
2: Yeah. And one of the most rewarding experiences I had in coffee was taking a buyer. She was kind of new to the role of buying for her roasting company. Mm-hmm. We went to Brazil together. That's the best. And almost like You know, at the first cupping, it was an aha moment. And she's like, wow, these aren't the coffees that I'm like maybe most excited about and would score the highest and would geek out over with my coffee geeks. These are coffees that all my customers want to buy. They're sweet, they're chocolatey, they're full-bodied, they're rich. And boom, like to see her grow as a buyer from that moment until where she is now a few years later is is. super inspiring because she's – one of the best buyers in the city, and I think and those open-mindedness.
0: Those I think people who I enjoy working with, and people who I've seen have the have the most success in this business, are those who have that like never-ending thirst for like what else is out there, and they'll come back to what they know eventually. That's part of it, but you know, like when, when I go to a restaurant, I usually do order the Sauvignon Blanc, the Pinot Noir, the Grisshikas. Those <laughs> are things that I usually cannot find in my
1: work. Oh, so they, that's what they also, there's nothing foods.
0: else on the menu. I, wasn't that <laughs> that's the true. I guess probability wise, you're true. But like I, I, you know, I have a, a friend of mine who brings in these amazing wines from like, you know, Morocco mm-hmm. and I'm excited yeah. to taste those. I don't view them as competition. I view those as Moroccan wines. How could they possibly compete with my wines in Central Europe? Because there's no way they could the, be remotely similar.
2: And the rising tide lifts all ships, right? Here's I, another I, I, region where people I aren't
0: thinking, thinking so. about wine. People are like, oh, Eric, are you working with another importer? I'm like, if they're bringing in good wines,
1: great. If they're bringing bad wines, yeah, then I'm actually concerned because they're poisoning the well for me. I mean, all yeah, all these words. I mean, I know Europe is not known here, but, you know, it should be because it's, you know, it's it's we have a wine culture. But there's all these words like Syria, you know, you used to make amazing wine. There's one hill which is still... Even today, making wine in a war zone, same with Libya. There are some amazing wines
0: coming out of Israel and Syria. Actually, a, a friend of mine, this guy, Jason, has a company called Terra Santa, and they are bringing in wines from that part of the world. Wow, They're phenomenal. Incredible. Literally, grapes grown in Syria. They might be produced in Jordan or wherever. I don't know the details, but he's bringing out wines of native grapes from the Middle East, from war-torn, refugee-ridden areas. And the wines that come out are like... Talk about something being captured in a bottle. That wow. would excite me to try. Yeah, those those kinds of wines.
1: Those are way. Yeah, yeah right?
0: that's like. It? And again, if you want to be, you know, with you want to put money towards something, you know, if that's important to you, that part of the world and doing something, that's a great selfish way to help out, right? right. So,
1: <laughs> if somebody wants to buy, let's say Botvrigesh Kadarka 2000, what is it? Seventeen? This is eighteen. Just it's arrived. Ooh, nice. Where yeah. can I buy it?
0: Um, it's a good question. You know, this is one of my, um, so I, uh, only sell legally to restaurants and retail. I don't, uh, I'm like, I'm not like a winery. You can just come to my website and okay. buy the wines. Mm-hmm. I also don't want to compete with the love of people that support me. Um, my issue right now is that how often do you go into a wine shop and go to their Slavic section or even their Pannonian section, or even... Their central European section, mm-hmm. normally you have to go to an adjacent area. If you want to buy Croatian or Slovenian wines? Go to their Italian section and maybe there's a few bottles hiding about. If you want to go Hungarian ones, go to, if they have an Austrian section, it'll probably be over there. Mm-hmm. Same with a wine menu. You know, there's a, there are a few exceptions now in the Bay area or even in New York or Los Angeles.
2: You can name names if you want.
0: I know. Well, I do all forget someone and I'm already going to be in trouble. But, you know, there are, um, it's still my portfolio for the most part is picked off in pieces that make sense for them to take a risk. Right. But to devote an entire section to it has not really occurred. So there There are two exceptions, but, you know, mostly people are looking for me. They say, oh, we want to really, um, you know, we want a light a light aromatic high acid low alcohol red that's you know not carbonic and not what i already have not mm-hmm. a or whatever i have and i'll be like oh i have a few things for you to try and it'll fill that slot ah. but to go into a, re- a restaurant and be like you know what is your
1: se- selection of slovakian wines? i think is still unfortunately a rarity okay so you know there's a lot of uh, people here wilson and they have cafes where they do plant cafes uh do you think cafe and wine goes together I think they do, but
0: I don't know if the market bears that. Like, there's a really, if I'm going to name drop, there is one of my favorite places in the city, which is called 20th Century Cafe, which is literally a Viennese Budapest-style cafe with all the proper pastries. You want, want to get, get you there. Wow. You want Eshterhaji, you want, you know, Dobos. 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 Oh, they have Dobos. Nice. And I mean,
1: proper. Strudel? Yeah. Everything.
0: All done by hand.
1: That's an ex-bottocast. We were going to make... A and she,
0: and, it she makes, and they make amazing coffee. And Michelle, the, the chef and owner, she actually has a really lovely selection of wines. Most of which are mine, but she also has some great examples of sparkling wow. wines from Tokai and to the places. It hasn't worked. People associate it with pastries and lunch. And we don't yet have a pretty vibrant wine with lunch culture as you would in Europe. Yeah. Like for us, like having a bottle of wine at lunch in Europe is uh, nothing of note. Because, Here it'd be like... Are you having some problems at home? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's viewed as a problem. So yeah. I would mean? love places like that to sell more wine. And for me, it's lovely because I can go and have a great, you know, Hungarian-style lunch, Austrian lunch, and a lovely bottle of wine. Right. But I am not probably the norm.
2: But I do think it's interesting for a cafe owner, somebody who has more traditional coffee cafes, yeah. you know, it's... the. The bread and butter of those businesses, it's not quite like a restaurant where just average ticket price and number of seatings drives it. That's part of it. That's not that it's not important. But coffee is so ritualistic, right? Where do you go every morning for your cup of coffee? Yeah. Can you do something and build something into your routine that gets that morning Visitor or that lunch visitor, yeah, to come back a little bit later in the day. How many staff I would you think get to we'll happen at, at five o'clock? I think to what I would think
0: wine? be a more successful model, just based on where we are right now, at least in this kind of Bay Area, is to at least have a nice, strong retail element of wine to so be going. People who really care about their coffee probably also care about their wine mm-hmm. to some degree. If you could get your morning coffee and grab that bottle of wine for dinner, and you could do it in one stop, one parking spot. Then there's something to the problem is
2: title the that's the title for this podcast, right? Something <laughs> about get your morning coffee and your bottle of wine. It's like,
0: we talked about, you know, I love <laughs> if I have time between my kids attacking me to have coffee and read in the morning. And when I finally get those people to sleep, I love to read at night. with a glass of wine. Like it part the pun, but the book ends my day you know, on a best case scenario. The problem is that people will spend a lot of time with food and, and, and coffee. I think increasingly, so is the food or coffee organic? Is it be yeah. done? Oh yeah. But with wine, it's like: Is it cheap? Is it? Do I like it? And so people, you know, people will spend you know twelve ninety nine a pound on asparagus, but the wine's twenty four dollars. Are like, okay, slow, slow down, slow your roll. You know, but right. you know, we,
1: we, we do, we do have conferences. Like my conference room uh, was for a long time ten bucks. It's it's horrible. I know, I know. Then you know now in the increase of twenty bucks is my conference room, and I don't think about it now. Everything about twenty bucks. I have to think a little bit about it before I purchase it. It doesn't mean I don't buy it, it's just like, it, you know, it has gives, to do... Yeah, it yeah. has to, like this one, not an issue. Like this one, Kadar Yeah, this one speaks to your Yeah, Yeah, soul. right away. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the other thing is why people don't drink here uh, wine for lunch. I mean, just imagine drinking a nice, extracted, high alcohol MAPA wine. Yeah, this, is, this wine. is just over 12
0: alcohol. But you imagine that elegance. you drink
1: Napa for lunch. I mean, you fall asleep right away.
0: European yeah. wines is a different story. Yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah, there's a table wine aspect to it. So I would say that I would wish that people would pay more attention. And again, you know, people get so political with their food and, and their water. And it's like, you talk about, you know, this is dry farmed, this is organically produced. Because, because we using, have rain
1: in the summer. <laughs> and
0: and I, <laughs> I'm and say not just saying, not, not just that, this producer, but I mean,
2: with a biodynamic point of view. Yeah. But again, that's because that,
0: certification is a certain no, price uh, point. I, I, I get it,
2: but I love that. But you know, they're shooting, head, but and not just as a
0: producer, but everyone I work with, I'm trying to think about you know, how much water is used in winemaking?
2: How mm-hmm. much yeah, yeah. you'd be
0: alarmed at how much cleaning there is in a wine with water. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I give you that wine from Shoglow, from you know, they primarily rain catch. So I think there's ways to think about you know, what people spend so much time about what am I buying? They spend all this money on a hybrid car or plug in car, and they'll buy a wine that was literally fermented with, you know, enzymes and yeasts and oh, yeah. color adjustments and centrifuged and reverse osmosis and whatever. So it's weird how with wine people spend so much money on other things. And this is a total afterthought. They just assume it's grapes. Right. And it's largely not.
2: So what what what's your approach when you're approaching somebody like that, trying to turn them on to these wines? And, and I asked this <laughs> Valerian, and I, I, I kind of have a dream with the wine Valerian and I are making too go to this wine group that my mom and dad are part of that has a lot of winemakers uh-huh. in New Mexico. Yeah, Albuquerque cool. is like a great wine growing region. Yeah, yeah. The 1500s. But I want to turn them on to these, you know, more wines like this. I'm, I'm really curious, like how do you keep them open-minded and not just have them taste it and say, Oh, it's, it's not the familiar.
0: Yeah. Like how to taste this versus like, you know, a giant, you know, uh, Tempranio Cablin from, you know, whatever it's,
2: yeah. Or even just like a, you which may be more in the wheelhouse of it, but it's still very
0: different. Yeah. That. I think you have to kind of recreate that context you know, a little bit, like yeah. have it with some, some food, have it with, mm-hmm. you know, I think also the idea of like, Hey, this is wine's, you know, 12 and a half alcohol has nice refreshing acidity. You could have two glasses of this, a nice meal and be on your way. Mm-hmm. And there's. I love people who are like, you know, people come to these uh, tasting, consumer tastings where people like me stand at a wine shop for four hours and try to sell wine to help the account out, right? Be like, oh, do you want a sip? It's like, no, I'm driving. It's like, you know, it's a 250-pound guy. You're like, you can have a sip of wine. You can have a have I'll of I'll wine. Of this 11% <laughs> wine that won't even, you'll metabolize it before you leave the shop, right? And there's this perception where we can't enjoy wine like that. So you're almost at like not just the wine or where it's from. It's like the culture of like, no, you can have with these kinds of wines. You can have a glass at lunch, two glasses at dinner, and between two people, the wine's gone. The bottle's gone at that point. So I try to like you know try to format. like you know. Yeah, but you're right. That's that is that is the name of the game. And if I really knew how to do that, I'd be wildly successful. <laughs> But no, I,
2: I, thought, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, does Equator
1: sell wine?
2: They do. So Equator, the local roasting company, here uh-huh. and you know, my my wife works there. Just full disclosure, but yeah, they're some of their cafes sell so wine. I think they've done well with canned wine. Yeah, right? which is which awesome.
0: is here's the irony of canned wine, and a lot of the canned wine is actually quite good, and a lot of it's being purchased by you know larger brands now that like go into Trader Joe's or whatever. Yeah. But there's some really good canned wine. Now, the thing is, some of the cans are actually about two glasses of wine. But we of wine. think of can as a single serving. Oh, oh, I, I had a can, can, can of Coke. You have two cans of wine. You've had a bottle.
2: I <laughs> Quietly, you've can. had a bottle. I love canned wine to take to movies and sneak yes. into the movie at the AMC theater. Yeah, you yeah, before grab. I know it, it's a 16-ounce can of wine. Good Lord, that's three-quarters yep. of a bottle of wine. Yeah.
0: My theory. I maker, can't get myself. I learned this from a, a, a winemaker. maker. trigger something like a clean canteen or like one of those, uh, you know, thermoses that can maintain the cold temperature. Yep. You get a really oaky shard. Like something that's just been put through the mm-hmm. ringer. Like the, like just melted butter and acid and alcohol. Take that to a the movie theater. Get some good industrial popcorn.
1: It's
0: a Heavenly pairing. It's the only wine pairing I'll give you, <laughs> but it is magical.
2: Done. <laughs> but Done. you can
0: kind of burn through the older wines you purchase to get through it. But um, but yeah, I mean, that is the name of the game is like, how do you get someone to do a fundamental shift in their routine or their perception of a, a product? But people do it with other products all the time. Think about how much coffee we drink now versus 20 years ago, mm-hmm. right? Oh people God, getting three or four lattes a day, which by the way, theirs are 20 bucks. 100% if yes. not, not more in the bay area there's your there's your bottle of wine right there
1: so uh, you know i'm you know i'm asking uh because i think most of the listeners here you know who think opening cafe are you know opening with specialty coffee and i think the specialty coffee and specialty wine actually do belong together yeah so and i think that you know i like to always say that you should be weird if you want to come up with some idea you know to this world Everything exists to be beer, be something which is out of box. So yeah. to putting another Napa wine into your cafe would be, you know, I don't know. I mean, why? So but then you're maybe, maybe you sent yeah, so out your own competing on Also like, it's like trying, even though
0: there's certainly a place for them. And I drink them like a place for a mass produced beer versus a craft beer for your shop. Mm-hmm. Sure. You're out at the beach and someone gives you whatever you're like great ice cold, wonderful beer. But if you have a small cafe and you've got three beers to choose from that you can keep on quantity because, again, you're buying on quantity for price. You buy one case, it's a certain price. You buy 10 cases, it's a different price, right? So, yeah, in that scenario, I think it's wiser to go something like this mm-hmm. and actually, you know, differentiate yourself in the market. Exactly, that's the point. And you're not going to compete with a big brand supermarket if you're serving the same beer because you're not buying the same quantity. Yeah, that's right. and These- the not And the supplier is not going to prioritize it
2: either. Right. And I and I and I do like the idea of even the lower alcohol and some of those kind of secondary benefits. If, you know, if you're in a cafe or you own a cafe, you're trying to sell some wine. People probably aren't going to seek you out just for that wine. At least not for a year or more. Yeah. Your wine drinkers are going to be somebody who's meeting a friend for coffee, who's done with coffee for the day.
0: Yeah, there's that trend, there's that there's that twilight like, moment where you're like,
2: you know what? Yeah, but why, why would they buy wine from you versus going to the wine bar or the bar at the restaurant down the block and, and having something. Well, that's I think for the most like, part, if you see they, some,
0: if you see a lot of cafes, just kind of have an obligatory wine section. It's because that big supplier that was supplying you their coffee was like, oh, also buy these and we'll pay for this and pay for that. There's a pay to play element that I can't mm-hmm. compete with or people like me. I know. yeah. It's like, if you do a small restaurant, you could have a big distribution company come in, they'll print your menus. They'll give you a good price on the fridges. Right. And they'll deck you out to have a wine program, but then you will be buying those wines. So it is more work to have wines like this, but I think fundamentally at a competitive market, it's the way to kind of And
2: if you're if a roasting from. company like Equator, or if you're an independent cafe that's sort of sourcing from three or four different roasting companies, you're used to doing that work, right? You want yeah. to build those relationships with yourself. And again, the
0: more work you do, the more stories you're going to have. If you just go online and find something and buy it, that's not much of a story,
1: right? Yeah, totally. and, and it's similar in Europe, you know, with a coffee, like they give you free umbrellas, free, you know, free espresso maker, all yeah. these, you know, You
0: get the, out, the outdoor tables if you buy it from...
1: Yeah, know, and then your whole shop is just a big marketing for those brands and it's, yes. f- it's, it's just sad. So if somebody decides, oh yeah, I love this idea, I want to have wine in my cafe, how can they contact you? Then they can
0: go to dancinggranger.com and they can reach out to us directly. We have an email and to contact us. But I see above and beyond that, people who listen to this podcast, these kinds of wines from Serbia, Slovakia, Hungary, Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia, if you ask for them or see if you see them on a menu, someone put them there for a reason, not for the easy money. You can open up a restaurant and serve none of these wines, and you will hit. You will survive. <laughs> but if someone took the time to not put a Chardonnay or not put a Pinot Noir that would probably we sell with much less issue, and they put a Kadarka or a Fuderment or a Hajj or a Plavat Somali or whatever it is, it's probably because that person thinks there's something really special and they want you to try it. So I think there's always a good price to quality ratio at restaurants when you see wines like that on the list. They weren't there because it's easy. They're there because someone really wants to make something happen. And if you're at a restaurant and you don't see them, you do ask them, you know, what kind of wines from these areas do you have? The more people that ask those questions, then they will, they will, the market will respond. So, but see, you can do the US and there are other importers who are starting to delve into this part of the world, which again, a rising tide floats all boats. And actually, I hope those producers are successful, to a degree, <laughs> of course. Um, but you know, I I um, I think that is the ultimate way t- to do it. But yeah, obviously, we try to us directly. We can sell to you, but um, yeah, if you see a wine like that in a wine shop, give it a try. It's
1: it's because someone thought there's something with it. It's you know, I just. Uh I just see how unselfish you are because I'm trying to kind of like help you to pitch your stuff. <laughs> and you're, you're sending people to wine shops, you're pitching my region, which, you know, I have big respect. So thank you so much. So, so we'll, yeah. make sure,
2: we'll make sure that your URL is on the... Oh yeah, yeah definitely. The- yeah, yeah. But
0: honestly, I think there's just a groundswell, for people who, if you see these kinds of wines, you know, kind of, you know, act with your wallet to a certain degree. And again, there's no necessity to have these wines anywhere in the market yet. You know,
1: mm-hmm. so yeah, try it. All right, Eric, thank you so much. My
0: pleasure. Thanks for having me all in right. and having the oh, little a little really coffee. I like fun. this whole coffee. There's obviously a lot more places we could go, a lot of questions that we not answered. But uh, oh
1: yeah, I, I, I would, I would, you know, this can be like a ten-hour podcast. <laughs> <because> it's <laughs> that's so but <laughs> I like, we'll, do appreciate we'll have you time. Back sometime. And you it's us. nice to sit down and drink, you know, a little after lunch, but before dinner. This can't be
0: done. That's We're nice. all very lucid, it's all together, and uh, so yeah, let's. Uh, Keep the conversation going, and thanks for the uh, the platform and having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: all right really It's nice. a wrap. It's
2: a wrap.